Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to his word. Our Father and our God, as we sing, we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears uh, to listen, to hear your voice speak to us from your word through your spirit. And may we not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of it. So that even through our lives, that, um, Father, that we may bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to see Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, so, though, so that we don't just look to ourselves and our feeble selves, our feeble resources, uh, but Lord, look to Him and see how through faith in Him all things are possible for those who trust Him to do that which you have called us to do as a church, as individuals. Thank you that you're able to do this in us and accomplish your purposes in us, for we ask in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue on in our gospel series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we will be in chapter 9, verse 14 to 29, where we'll be looking at faith and unbelief. Have you ever uh, struggled to trust God in difficult circumstances? There were more strugglers and more honest people in the first service. <laughs> uh, this is good. Some of you are such wonderful stalwarts of faith that you don't struggle. Those few who do struggle, what are some instances where you struggle to, to in, struggled in trusting God? When you left your job, yeah. Being unemployed is in a very uncomfortable space. Um, where else? When you lose someone, uh, a loved one. There's some, uh, all sorts of struggles happen in families. Yeah, you know, in this fallen world, there are, there are more occasions than we would like to think where uh, we struggle, and uh, that struggle often extends to even uh, trusting God, whether God is with us and God cares for us. <clears throat> this morning, uh, we come to a passage in Scripture where the disciples of Jesus struggle with unbelief. Uh, while Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief, he doesn't reject them. Uh, he continues to instruct them. He calls them to continued faith even during impossible circumstances. Uh, and all that through the example of a father who struggles in his faith in the midst of a desperate situation. We are in the third section of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 22 to chapter 10, 52, uh, where Jesus makes this long journey to Jerusalem from the region of Galilee, uh, where Jerusalem, where he will suffer and he will die and he will rise again from the dead. But this journey is also a time of instruction of the disciples and uh, those whom he had chosen to be with him, to be sent by him, to exercise authority over evil spirits. Uh, Mark places this section, bookends this sections with two healing episodes of two blind men. Uh, the section opens with the healing of a blind man where uh, after the initial laying of hands of Jesus, he only sees partially. He sees people as though they are trees. 
but then a second touch heals him completely. And then Mark ends this section with the story of the healing of another blind man who comes to Jesus acknowledging him for who he is, son of David, and with the faith that Jesus is able to heal him. And Jesus heals him and he follows Jesus as Jesus heads to Jerusalem. This section is not just about two men who are literally blind, but this section is also about disciples who have eyes to see, but they don't see Jesus for who he is. So every time Jesus, uh, and three times he will do that, he will predict his passion, that his calling as the Messiah, the purpose as the king of the kingdom of uh, God was to give his life as a sacrifice. Uh, every time he predicts that, we already saw one in chapter 8, verse 31, the disciples respond with extreme incomprehension because in their understanding, the Messiah should not suffer at the hands of the enemies. The Messiah should make the enemies suffer at his hands. And we saw the, the first uh, uh, rejection of uh, Jesus' prediction by Peter, uh, who takes, takes him aside and rebukes him just after confuse, uh, confessing him as the Messiah. And Jesus in turn rebukes uh, Peter. He will predict two other times in this journey about what he's uh, headed for in Jerusalem. And every time the disciples respond with incomprehension, but Jesus doesn't reject them. Jesus continues to instruct them on what it means to be his disciples. To be his disciple is to follow after him in the way of the cross uh, and then experience glory as we saw even last week in the Mount of Transfiguration. This section, chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, at first glance, this story, as we even heard read so well by Robert, appears to be a miracle story, the casting out of a demon. But that's not what this story is about primarily, although it includes that. Uh, Mark has already established the credentials of Jesus leading up to his question in chapter 8, verse 29. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's right confession, you are the Christ. We as readers have already known from even verse 1 of Gospel of Mark, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, that He is the King of the Kingdom. It is in Him the Kingdom of God has come, that He is capable, He has the power and authority not just to drive out a single demon, but even legions of demons. We have already seen and we know that Jesus has the power even over death, as we saw in the raising of the daughter of Jairus. Uh, so the placement of this story of an exorcism uh, is in the, in, in the cycle of instruction of his disciples, and that it tells us then this story, the focus is on the disciples. Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple, especially in the need of faith to be a follower of Jesus? The story begins and ends with the failure of the disciples to trust. Uh, and the story is told in the context of a father who is in a desperate situ situation, who struggles to believe. Uh, we see this in four, four scenes, and each of these scenes focus on faith, or the lack of faith, or the need for faith. In verses 14 to 19, Jesus encounters faithlessness, uh, and that in his disciples. In 20 to 24, we meet a desperate father who expresses faith while confessing and seeking help for his unbelief. In verses 25 to 27, we see faith in action as Jesus drives out a demon that had been terrorizing a boy. And finally, in verses 28 to 29, Jesus identifies the disciples' unbelief that masquerades as self-sufficiency and exhorts them to prayerful dependence on God through faith that is expressed in prayer. So please turn with me to Mark chapter uh, 
9 verse 14 and following. And when they came to his disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to greet him. And, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? The mountaintop exaltation soon turns into mountain bottom exasperation. Jesus and the three disciples come down the mountain and they encounter this great commotion. Uh, the remaining nine scribes who didn't, uh, nine disciples who didn't come up the mountain, uh, they're squabbling with the scribes. A, a great crowd had gathered around them. Um, uh, we begin to think that maybe Peter was right after all. Good night. They should have just remained in peace and tranquility in a tent with glory all around them, away from all these squabbles and crowds and, and screaming demons, as we will see, uh, that torment children. Uh, before Jesus could inquire what was going on, the crowd spots him, uh, and we are told that they were greatly amazed. You know, usually, so far as we have seen, amazement follows after Jesus performs a sign of wonder uh, or after his authoritative teaching. We saw that, for example, in the very first uh, time Jesus teaches in a synagogue and drives out a demon, and they were amazed at his authority that even demons submit to him. But amazement is not always a, an indicator of uh, faith, as we have seen repeatedly. Even the disciples, uh, after they are amazed that Jesus uh, could calm the storm, the winds and the waters with just his word, that Jesus could walk on water, they are amazed. But that amazement only results in fear and unbelief. Here we are told the crowd is, to, is, is greatly amazed and Jesus hasn't done anything yet. At least at, at this time, uh, scholars speculate that the source of their amazement it was possibly that Jesus' glory that was revealed in the transfiguration had not fully worn off. Maybe uh, much like people marveled at the, at the receding glow of Moses' face after his encounter with God. There's something similar going on and maybe Jesus bears some residual effect of the transfiguration. Mark doesn't give us any of those details. We don't need to speculate. Whatever the reason, the crowd ran up to Jesus and greeted him. And Jesus asked the disciples... What is it that they were arguing about? It is possible that he asked the scribes, but you know, nothing is mentioned about the scribes after, this, uh, after the first mention of them in, in, uh, in verse 14. Um, and the, you know the scribes, given any opportunity, uh, they will take advantage of it and denounce Jesus, so we don't hear from them. So this question is probably directed to the disciples. What are you arguing about with them? And we are told, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and it foams, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Well, Jesus asked the questions, and the disciples don't respond, but a man from the crowd answers, and that man is at the center of this dispute between the disciples and the scribes. I brought you my son, uh, teacher. Important phrase. First, the man calls Jesus rabbi or teacher. This is too late in the narrative to be addressing Jesus as just a teacher. There's so much more to this one. The, the, the people have seen that, but we can't really blame this man because that's what Peter had called him after confessing him as Messiah. After witnessing his transfiguration, Peter had just called him rabbi. But here, when this man calls Jesus teacher, we, we get this hint that maybe this man 
doesn't fully realize who Jesus is and what he's capable of. But notice, the man brought his son to Jesus. I brought my son to you. So we also get a hint of faith. Amid this confusion about who Jesus is and what he is capable of, he has sufficient faith that he brings his son to Jesus. And why did he bring his son to Jesus? Just as many desperate people had come to Jesus for help, he had come to Jesus for his son who has a spirit that makes him mute, that seizes him, that throws him down, that makes him uh, grind his teeth and become rigid. Uh, his son is possessed by a demon that torments him in, in horrific ways. Mark doesn't spare us the details and will continue to describe his affliction in graphic detail several times before we are done with this passage. Experts think this boy has some form of epilepsy, but Mark has demonstrated throughout the gospel that he can differentiate between disease and demon possession, and he throughout characterizes this as demon possession and not just as uh, the disease of marked by epilepsy. Uh, and he says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to bring someone to the disciples of Jesus is to bring them to Jesus. When people come to us uh, as believers, uh, they come to us as those who represent Christ. We were told already in chapter 3 that uh, Jesus had appointed the twelve that they may be with him, that he might send them out to preach and, ask, uh, and have authority to cast out demons. And in chapter 6, he does send them out two by two. And he gives them authority over unclean spirits. And then we are told at the end of their trip that they had cast out many demons. But here they fail. Why? We saw a string of events after their return from their successful mission trip uh, where the disciples seemed to have forgotten and have, had failed to trust in the authority that Jesus had, Jesus had vested in them. They could only see their own limitations. And they either balk at what Jesus calls them to do or like here, they attempt and fail because they don't turn their eyes toward Jesus. They keep their eyes on themselves. We quickly discover in Jesus' response to them and, and, the, and the query of the disciples at the end of the passage that they have failed because they lack faith. And we also discover the probable reason for the squabble between the disciples and the scribes. I'm sure the scribes wasted no time in attributing the failure of the disciples to their lack of official credentials from the authorities in Jerusalem or maybe their failure to follow a rabbinic formula for exorcism. I'm sure they used this occasion to denounce Jesus as well. The disciples had not only openly exposed their inadequacy, but they've been subjected to public shame. And it doesn't appear like that they're going to get much relief from Jesus either, who rebukes them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. First glance, it appears that Jesus is rebuking the Father, because after all, it's the Father who had responded to Jesus' query. But contextually, it is very unlikely that Jesus is responding to the man. He's addressing the disciples to whom the Father had brought the Son and, were, and, and who, who were unable to cast out the demon. We, see, we sense this urgency in his lament. How long? Uh, he knows that his time of departure is near. He has not and will not give up on his disciples. They are his chosen emissaries through whom the kingdom of God, which he was about to inaugurate through his death and his resurrection, will be proclaimed. 
The authority that he had already invested in them was sufficient for them to proclaim the kingdom in power, including the casting out of the powers of darkness. Yet the disciples seemed to lack faith. When will they learn? When will they believe? How long? Jesus will not give up on them or on the man uh, who brought his son to him. He, he commands that the boy be brought to him. The rebuke of Jesus is reminiscent of God's charge against the Israelites uh, who failed to trust him in the wilderness. We read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Similarly, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, And he said, this is God speaking, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation. Jesus called them a faithless generation. Children in whom there is no faithfulness. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if he can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The boy is brought to Jesus. And when the spirit sees Jesus, it, it, it renews the torment of the boy. It causes the boy to convulse and fall on the ground, roll about, foaming at his mouth. The defiant spirit wants to demonstrate its evil power and, and hold on the boy. Uh, Jesus is not impressed by the spirit's display of evil. Uh, he doesn't even address the spirit. He speaks to the father uh, about how long the boy has been suffering this torment. Uh, we heard the initial description of the boy's condition followed by the evil spirit's torment uh, of the boy before the eyes of Jesus. And now we learn more about the demon's attempts to kill the boy, to destroy him. We don't know how old this boy was when he was brought to Jesus, but from his childhood he had been exposed to the evil spirit's attempt to destroy him in the most cruel of ways. The, boy, the boy's father is desperate. He's lost all hope. The, the, the failure of the disciples, this renewed attack of the evil spirit before Jesus, all that brings him to the end of his rope. He is so overcome with despair at the suffering of his son uh, that he seems to lose all hope. But he still clings to what's left of his faith. He asks Jesus to have compassion on them and help them. Notice, compassion on us and help us. He's not just a boy who is suffering. So is the father. You know, Parents always suffer when children suffer, especially when they are helpless in caring for their children. However, it's, it appears that the father is not so sure about Jesus' ability to help this boy. We, we hear the hesitation in his petition, if you can do anything. Maybe he wonders whether Jesus would be, able, uh, would be more, any more successful than his disciples. Uh, his, his, his doubt doesn't seem to be that Jesus would do something, but whether Jesus could do something. Uh, his petition is very different from the leper that we met in chapter 1, who comes to Jesus and says, If you will, you can make me clean. The leper had no doubt about the ability of Jesus. 
only his willingness, and Jesus has pity on him and cleanses him immediately. But here Jesus responds sharply to the father who is uncertain of Jesus' ability to help his son. If you can, Jesus repeats the father's words. The issue here is not his ability. All things are possible for one who believes. Uh, this is not a statement of the power of faith, as though faith has power in itself, but how one perceives the power of God. This is not an endorsement of the name it and claim it word of faith movement, but an affirmation of the power of God to do all things. With God, all things are possible. And as Rawlinson puts it, faith will set no limits to the power of God. But there's a question here as to the identity of the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. Who is this one? Is Jesus referring to the faith of the, the one performing the miracle or the one seeking the miracle? Could refer to either. Uh, it could refer to the faith of the miracle worker because we just heard of the dis uh, disciples' inability to cast out the demon. Uh, and we will learn that it's because of their lack of faith. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, is confident of his calling. To usher in the presence of the kingdom of God in power by casting out the powers of evil. It could also refer to the one who is seeking the miracle. Uh, those who come to him need to believe that he has the power to meet their need. Like the leper who came. Like the four friends of the paralytic. Like Jairus. Like the woman with a bleeding disorder. Like the Syrophoenician woman and others. The father here seems to be doubtful of Jesus' ability to meet his needs. So it's possible that when Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, he could be referring both to the miracle worker and the one seeking the miracle. Well, the father may have very well been at the fringes of this faithful generation, faithless generation, the unbelieving generation that Jesus spoke of. But unlike the people of Nazareth who persisted in their unbelief, we see repentance in the father. He responds with faith, I believe. And then a confession of his unbelief and a plea to Jesus to help him with his unbelief. See, he may not be sure of Jesus' ability, but he's desperate enough to believe that Jesus perhaps could do something. More importantly, uh, notice the confession of his unbelief. There's a paradox there. He readily confesses his unbelief, but even that confession of unbelief turns into an expression of faith because he asks Jesus to help him with his unbelief. He believes that Jesus can grant him the faith that expects the impossible from God, the miracle, the deliverance of his son. Uh, this is faith-seeking faith. Honest believers uh, since then who have struggled in their faith when faced with despair have voiced those very words in the prayer of faith. I know I have. I'm sure you have too. See, his faith may not be the confident faith of the Syrophoenician woman who would not take no for an answer or the steadfast, steadfast faith of Jairus and the woman with bleeding who persist in their faith. His faith is a struggling faith, but a struggling faith is still faith, especially when it takes that struggle to Jesus. How will Jesus respond to the Father's plea of faith, for faith, for deliverance? Well, the man finds in Jesus what we have found, a wonderful and merciful Savior who will not turn away those who cry out to him. We read in verses 25 to 27, and when Jesus saw the crowd coming, running to saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, "You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again." And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that 
Most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus had perhaps moved away from the crowd in, 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 in his conversation with the boy's father, and the crowd now rushes to him, or maybe the crowd is still continuing to grow. Uh, the Son of God, in whom the kingdom of God has come in power, who has just been revealed to the three disciples as God's beloved Son, who shares in his glory, demonstrates that he is both willing and able to grant the Father's request. He rebukes the Spirit and commands it. Uh, we discovered that the, the, the Spirit, in, in addition to all the other torments, had struck the boy deaf and mute. The boy has suffered much. Jesus commands the evil spirit not only to leave the boy, but to never enter him again. And the words of, at the word of Jesus, demons must submit. Demons must flee. But this one does so with a final flurry of its demonic activity, demonic wickedness. Before it departs in submission to Jesus' command, it thrashes the boy so severely that he is left as though dead. And we can always rely on the crowd to be bearer of bad tidings. You know, they believe and they declare that the demon, even if it had left, had finally succeeded in what it had been trying since the boy's childhood. Like someone said, the surgery was successful, but the patient is dead. They believe he's dead. See, but screaming demons can't stop Jesus, as we have seen several times in the gospel. Death can't stop Jesus, as we saw in this case of Jairus' daughter. So Jesus takes the boy by hand and lifts him up, and the boy arises. Mark uses the language of resurrection here, the same language that he used to describe the raising of Jairus' daughter, who was indeed dead. Whether the boy was actually dead or not, Jesus gives him new life, a life free from the torment of the evil spirit for the first time since his childhood. The kingdom of God has come in power in Jesus and has rescued one more from the powers of darkness. See, remember when they were walking down the mountain, these three disciples were questioning among themselves what rising from the dead could mean? Well, now Mark gives them a preview, or Jesus gives them a preview of things to come. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, Mark doesn't say anything about the response of the father or the son or the crowd. A story is only secondarily about them. The story is primarily about the disciples and their faith or their lack of faith. So the focus on the entire section here is on the disciples and Jesus' instruction to them. And, uh, the disciples like this post-game review with Jesus. You know, they, they, they had suffered public shame, so they choose the privacy of a house to explore the reason why they could not cast out the demons. Their words are telling, and so also is Jesus' response. Why could we not cast it out? It seems like the right question to ask, but notice the words closely. Why could we not cast it out? The answer is in the question. See, they by themselves had no power to cast anything out. Their authority came from Jesus. It was by the authority he had vested in them that they had successfully cast out demons. Jesus hadn't withdrawn his authority that he had granted them to do works of wonder, but they had, after their mission, stopped looking to the authority of Jesus and only looked to themselves and their ability, their resources, and their potential. When they do that, they either 
refuse to see themselves as able to do what Jesus calls them to do, as in the case of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, where Jesus has them to feed, and they say, what, with what we have? And they didn't, and, and their view of their own inability kept them from doing what Jesus had called them to do. Uh, but here, uh, again, they look to their own ability to cast out a demon, which they should be able to, but that's not what they needed to look. Why could we not cast it out? Jesus' response to them further reinforces that they had relied on themselves and not on the power of God in Jesus' authority, and they had failed miserably. He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples had failed to pray. See, prayer is the outward expression of inward faith. Prayer is expressed dependence on God with whom all things are possible. Jesus is not saying this is a special kind of demon that requires prayer to be exercised. Jesus hadn't prayed when uh, he cast it out. See, they had failed because they had not prayed. That is, they had attempted to cast out the demon relying on their own power, which was powerless against the evil they encountered. Their unbelief was their perceived self-sufficiency. They did not pray is synonymous with they did not trust God. They did not pray is synonymous with they trusted in themselves. See, it is they, the disciples, who belong to the faithless generation, not the Father. Unbelief of all kinds, even the self-sufficient kind, is incapable of doing that which only God, God can do and what God calls us to do. And Jesus continues to instruct them. Uh, see, they would succeed when they turn from their unbelief, from their self-reliance to that faith of prayerful dependence on God. Marshall's comments are instructive. He says, presumably they had come to regard their power to heal and exercise as their own autonomous possession rather than being a commission from Jesus to realize his delegated authority afresh each time through dependent prayer. Mark is suggesting then that self-confident optimism may feel like faith, but it is in fact unbelief because it disregards the prerequisite powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. I like what Newman says about prayer. Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God and so of proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing is simply the result of just hard work. This story also, as with all that Mark has included, is, is, is first about the supremacy of Jesus. He is the king of the kingdom of God that was present in him. The power of the kingdom, especially in expelling the powers of darkness that held the world captive, was made manifest through his words, through his works. Where the disciples try and fail, Jesus' command is sufficient to cast out the demon. He is indeed the beloved Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. But our passage today is also, uh, also presented the struggles of a father in despair, a struggling faith. And we also saw the self-sufficient unbelief of the disciples. And if we are honest, we can identify with both and learn from them and their response. We are familiar with unbelief that uh, completely re rejects God and refuses to acknowledge God. This is the unbelief that we associate with those who reject the faith. These are the people that Paul identifies in Romans as those who do not honor God or give thanks to him. 
But however, there's another kind of unbelief that is often found among believers. This is unbelief of self-sufficiency, the kind of unbelief that we see in the disciples, the kind that looks only to oneself and not to God for what it can do. The passage began and ended with the disciples. First, their inability to drive out the demon, and then the reason for it, that is their unbelief expressed in their failure to pray. They had taken their eyes off Jesus, and they only looked to themselves. Uh, perhaps their past success had caused them to be self-reliant instead of trusting in Jesus to exercise his authority through them. They and we ought to know that uh, we are strong only when we are weak. When we realize our inadequacy and complete dependence on God's grace, we see him work in us and through us that which he calls us to do, that which only he can do. We are characterized by that same kind of unbelief when we settle for only that which we can accomplish. We settle for the tried and true. The kind of unbelief doesn't need God to accomplish what it sets out to do. It has resources of its own to do what it takes. This is unbelief because it is not relying on God, but on oneself. We settle for knowing and doing, we settle for doing what we can do and our resources permit us to do. We settle for what appears logical and reasonable and, and practical. As someone said, uh, often practical is the enemy of faith. Self-sufficient faith settles for what it can accomplish on its own or refuses to do that which is beyond its limitations or perceived limitations. We see both in the disciples. Earlier, their unbelief, their self-reliance kept them from obeying Jesus' command to feed the multitude. Here, they believed that they had the potential and looked to themselves and didn't look to Jesus, and they failed. We settle for such unbelief when we reduce our faith to, to mere religion. We think we are Christians because we attend services on Sunday or we read the Bible or we pray or hang out together with other Christians and, and, and do not contaminate ourselves with the world. Um, our self-sufficient unbelief uh, refuses to heed the difficult calling of Jesus to be his witnesses to a sin-soaked world filled with evil and violence and all that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, we may appreciate those who have the faith to uh, engage the world, those like missionaries and such. Uh, we don't believe we have that kind of faith. Though, though we call them radicals. They have a radical faith. But we only have ordinary faith, and ordinary faith always settles for what is doable. See, what we fail to realize is those radicals and us we are all empowered by the same Holy Spirit. And He is able to empower us to do all that Jesus has commanded us to do if we look to Jesus and not to ourselves. See, we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, but we only follow Him to places we deem comfortable and within our limits. Follow Jesus to church services, new ministry programs, perhaps an outreach or two. We try to get folks to join our church. We make sure that we are doctrinally orthodox. Um, we, study, we, we, uh, we, do, we have our strategies. Um, all of these are good. All of these may be important. Jesus calls us to do these things, but Jesus has called us to do so much more. He calls us to follow him in his mission to set the captives free, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to overcome evil by doing good to speak the truth to the powers by standing with those in the margin, uh, to endure hardship and suffering for the sake of Jesus, 
for all of these things, we need faith, and we don't have the resources that we need in ourselves. Dowd defines faith as the confidence in the power of God to do the impossible through us for the sake of the other. Confidence in the power of God to do the impossible through us for the sake of the other. What is it that God is calling us as a church to do that seems impossible to us, that would take faith? Maybe it's to move into a space that makes us uncomfortable, but opens up the opportunity for public witness to the Lord Jesus. Will we trust God for the impossible? May God is calling, may, maybe God is calling us to see our new facility uh, primarily as a place, not primarily as a place for us to gather, but as a place to serve, it, serve the community, to engage the city. Will we trust God or settle for self-protective unbelief? Maybe God is calling us to partner with those who are engaged in bringing shalom to a broken world, in combating human trafficking, homelessness, migrant relief, other ministries that take us into uncomfortable spaces. Will we trust God and join those servants in bringing the presence of Jesus to these dark places? What is God calling us to do as individual believers? Things that seem impossible for us. Maybe it's the courage to speak of Jesus one more time to that person who has rejected our every attempt to witness to him. Will we trust God to do the impossible? Maybe it's the call to be kind to a difficult neighbor who seems to go out of his way to be unkind to us. Will we trust God to do the impossible? Maybe God calls us to leave a job that is well allowed to another one where there's greater opportunity for witness or to remain in a job that is so hard because there is opportunity for witness to Jesus. Will we trust God to do the impossible? I don't know what God is calling you to do today that's, that seems impossible to you. See, see let's not settle for self-sufficient unbelief that only looks to our resources and limits ourselves to that. Let us trust and obey our Lord for that which only He can do. And then we have a witness. We also see the struggling faith of the Father. That's something we can all relate to. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief has often been my cry, and it probably has been yours as well. See, when, when faced with desperate situations, our, our faith can fail, and we wonder if God cares, or if God is even able to help us. As parents, we despair when our children struggle with disease, with men mental illness or addictions, or, or when they're caught in the grip of uh, ungodly relationships. Uh, and, and on top of that, we feel guilt for what we perceive as lack of faith, and then our pious people tell us that we just need to have faith. And that just multiplies our turmoil. The Father's cry, his, his plea to Jesus, gives us hope in our struggle with faith during our despair. That as long as we take our struggle to Jesus, it is fine to struggle in times of difficulty. I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. The Father takes what little faith he has to Jesus and asks for help. See, Jesus only asked that we that uh, he trusts that he would trust in God's power. To trust that God's power is not limited, 
Now, we have a long list of biblical witnesses to the kind of struggle that the father faced and that we often face. Prophets, spokesmen for God, often struggled, routinely struggled even, and expressed that to God in, in very strong language. Jeremiah is a, is a great example. He was set aside even from his mother's womb to be God's spokesman. But we see his faith in the midst of his struggle when he um, cries out to God with strong words. But that cry is also a cry of faith because he cries out to God. Oh Lord, you have deceived me. Ever said that to God? <laughs> and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, then you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. That's the message God had given him. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. Struggles in his faith to be who God has called him to be, but he takes that struggle to God. The psalmists do that all the time. It's often with words that seem to border on the disrespectful. Uh, but they're actually cries for help from the very God they are finding it hard to trust. Psalm 44, great example. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why did you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You too wrote a song called Wake Up Dead Man based on this, uh, the message version of this psalm. Our Lord's cry of dereliction my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of struggle, but it's a cry of faith because it's a cry to his God. And all of us and all these who struggle with the faith in the midst of life's despair, we are still trusting God when we turn to God with our struggle, even as the Father did. Where are you struggling in your faith this morning? Does God seem far away and uncaring about your pain, your struggle? Are you wondering if he's able to protect you in your unsafe living situation or workplace? Maybe it's a, it's a debilitating disease that threatens you or your loved one. Does he care about your children who are struggling with mental health and difficult relationships? See, we can go to God with our doubts, our fears, our, uh, even our struggles to believe and seek his help. Uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as much as he did not reject his disciples or this father, he will not reject us. He will answer us and grant us the grace to deliver us from our troubles or comfort us with his presence in the midst of our troubles, with an enduring faith that trusts his outcome for our struggle. See, we can bring our fragile faith to Jesus, even as the father did, and, and seek his help. A struggling faith is still faith as much as a settled faith is faith. When we come before God in humble dependence, he grants us the faith to rely on him amid uh, life's difficulties. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He knows the frailty of our faith. He cares for us. He will grant us the grace to persevere. I like how Gambis defines faith. He says, faith involves the conviction that what scripture says about the identity of Jesus and the reality of the kingdom of God is true. 
And this entails a complete reordering of one's life around this reality. Our lives are not ordered around ourselves or our troubles. They are ordered around the reality of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is about. This morning we will close our time with a, a prayer of the uh, Northumbrian uh, community, a monastic community. Join with me by repeating that uh, highlighted, underlined uh, line. I'll read the first one and you can respond. We'll respond together. Let's pray together. Lord, you have always given bread for the coming day. And thou I am poor, today I believe. Lord, you have always given strength for the coming day. And thou I am weak, today I believe. Lord, you have always given peace for the coming day. And thou of anxious heart, today I believe. Lord, you have always kept me safe in trials. Now, tired as I am, today I believe. Lord, you have always marked the road for the coming day. And though it may be hidden, today I believe. Lord, you have always lightened this darkness of mine. And though the night is here, today I believe. Lord, you have always spoken when the time was ripe. And though you be silent now, today I believe. And together we believe, Lord, help us overcome our unbelief. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to Tell It From Calvary.